In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. U.S. stocks finished the last trading day of January solidly in the red. In fact, there's an old Wall Street saying, so goes January, so goes the year. And if that is the case this year, this could mean that the longest bull market in history is coming to an end. And of course, from a political perspective, it couldn't happen at a worse time. The Dow Jones was down 603 points today. 28,256 is where the index closed. And that's actually down now about 1% on the month, which means the Dow is down 1% on the year. So is the S&P 500. That index was off about 1.8% today, down just over 58 points. It is in the red on the year, but ever so slightly. It's only down about 0.1%. One five percent. The only of the major indexes that's positive on the year and on the month, of course, is the Nasdaq. You know, we've had some big movers in the Nasdaq. Uh, you know, Amazon today. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But there's been some other tech stocks that have helped push the the Nasdaq up. So, despite the one point six percent decline today, uh, the Nasdaq is up about two percent on the month. And you know, today's big drop in the Dow, that 603-point decline, that came despite a 5% gain in Dow component IBM. 
The Dow transports, though, were down 2.5% on the day, and that index is down 3% on the year. But once again, really, the weakest index of them all is the Russell 2000, which was down just over 2% on the day, but down 3.3% on the year. And I've been talking about the Russell 2000 on this podcast for a while as the only of the major indexes that didn't hit a new record high. Uh, The high for that index was still reached in the fall of 2018. And that is the index that is the most sensitive to the U.S. economy. And despite all the talk about how great the U.S. economy is, that is the index that is the weakest. Now, the media, of course, is blaming uh, the shellacking on Wall Street uh, to uh, worries about the coronavirus, right? That's all I heard today on the news. It's the coronavirus, the coronavirus. It's all the headlines. And so the stock market must be going down because of the coronavirus. But as I said, when I first started talking about this, the coronavirus is not the reason that the market is going down. It is the excuse that investors are using to sell the market. But if it wasn't the coronavirus, they would have found another excuse. As I was saying on this podcast for months, once we got a China trade deal, the market was very vulnerable to a decline. Another old Wall Street adage is buy the rumor, sell the fact. And traders and investors had been buying the rumors of a trade deal for months. And now we got one. And what was I saying on this podcast would happen to the market once a trade deal was signed? I said the market would sell off on the news. And that's what's happening. Maybe it didn't sell off on the day of the news or the very next day, but it didn't take very long for the markets to come up with a reason to do what they were going to do anyway, which is go down. And in fact, if you want to look at a lot of the stocks that are the weakest, they really have nothing to do with the coronavirus. I mean, I could see the airlines, sure, uh, some flights are being grounded or they're not flying in and out of China. So maybe there's going to be a decline in in travel. But oil prices are also plunging, which should help the, uh, the airlines, right, if the cost of buying fuel is going down. But there are a lot of stocks that are going down that clearly have nothing to do uh, with the coronavirus in China. In fact, the weakest stocks, I think, are the retailers. Although there's been some big uh, industrials. If you look at 3M or DuPont, a lot of these stocks, Dow Chemical, are getting clobbered in the industrial space. But if you look at the retailers, it really is a bloodbath with the lone exception of Amazon. Amazon was up today 7.4%. It was up better than 10% earlier in the day, but with all the selling, uh, you know, there was a little bit of a decline from the highs in Amazon, but still, it's at a new record high. It's now sporting a trillion dollar plus market cap. It's in a very exclusive club, although I don't think uh, the membership is gonna last very long. This is very indicative of a major market top when you have a handful of stocks that everybody loves uh, reaching nosebleed valuations. But despite the increase in Amazon, if you look at the XRT, which is a index of retailers, that index dropped 3% on the day. And that's including 
uh, Amazon's you know, rise. It's a component of that index. So retailers were weaker than the overall market. And if you actually look at some of these stocks, I mean, let me go over a few of these stocks and just you can see the carnage. Urban Outfitters down over 8% today, 8% in one day. Look at Dillard's. Dillard's was down over 10% today, one day. Um, Best Buy, all right, that was only down 2.8%. Walmart was only down 1.8%. That was one of the best performings of the retailers. Look at Target, though, down 3.5%. Nordstrom's down 4.7%. The Gap down almost 4%. Macy's down 5.25%. Kohl's down over 4%. That's a new 52-week low on Kohl's. Kohl's was at $75. In the last year, it's at $42.75 right now. So if the U.S. consumer is really so strong, why are all these retailers so weak? I mean, it's not just Amazon. I mean, sure, Amazon is part of it, but it doesn't explain this massacre. It shouldn't be this bad if the consumer is really this flush. And in fact, we got more economic news today that really pokes more holes in this greatest economy ever narrative. In fact, we did get yesterday, first of all, we got the report on GDP for the fourth quarter of 2019. And that came in pretty much in line with estimates of 2.1%. But what's really interesting about the number is the GDP price deflator. And remember, the way we get the real GDP is by subtracting out the inflation, and they use the deflator. And so the original deflator that they reported when they um, estimated this quarter was 1.8%. And the consensus was that the deflator would notch up to 2%. Instead, it went all the way down to 1.4%. So according to the government, the inflation rate during the fourth quarter of last year annualized out to just 1.4%. Now, of course, I am always very suspicious about government numbers, particularly when it comes to the inflation numbers. I mean, I really don't expect any honest numbers on inflation because the last thing the government wants to do is be honest and level with the American public to the extent to which they're getting robbed through inflation. And of course, they need to pretend that inflation is low so that the Fed can keep interest rates low, pretending that we don't have enough inflation. If they actually report higher inflation, well, then the Fed has a harder time justifying its ridiculously uh, loose monetary policy. But if the deflator had come out at the 2% that had been estimated, that means instead of 2.1% GDP growth, we would have had 1.5% GDP growth for the fourth quarter. So we'll see if they end up changing uh, that deflator at some point when they revise these numbers. Uh, But as it stands now, 2.1% is what the government claims was growth for the fourth quarter, which means for all of 2019, we had GDP growth of 2.3%. Now that is the weakest uh, year for GDP growth uh, since Trump's been president. And what you have to think of is what happened during 2019 to stimulate the economy. Well, the Fed completely reversed course. And instead of supplying the rate hikes that everybody other than me expected, right, the Fed cut rates three times. In addition to cutting rates three times, the Fed returned to quantitative easing. 
So we had a lot of unexpected monetary stimulus. Of course, we had continued fiscal stimulus from the tax cuts and the increases in government spending. In fact, I think we had a record nominal increase in the national debt. So we had a double barrel of Keynesian artificial stimulus, monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus, yet the only fake growth that they could buy, right? Temporary fake growth with all that artificial stimulus, all they can get was 2.3% GDP growth. How is this the greatest economy in the history of America? I mean, it's not even the greatest economy in the modern era. It's not even the greatest economy uh, of this century, you know, uh, or of, the, of this de- of this uh, generation. I mean, this is all a bunch of nonsense. This is simply a continuation of the big, fat, ugly bubble that Donald Trump inherited from Barack Obama. In fact, look at the numbers we got today. Personal income was supposed to be up 0.3. It was up just 0.2. They revised the prior month from up 0.5 to up 0.4. I think this is about the slowest gain in a couple of years now for personal income. Of course, I don't believe these numbers because I think there's a lot more inflation out there than the government is reporting. So I don't think that real incomes have gained the way Trump pretends. I think they've continued to decline. But the real doozy was the Chicago PMI uh, that we got. They were looking for 48.5, right, for January. This would have been a slight decline from the 48.9 that we got in December. But we actually got 42.9. A huge miss. It's almost five years ago that we had a number this low. But even more important than how low the number is, and it's probably going to go even lower, is that for the last seven consecutive months, this uh, survey has been below 50. And what a PMI below 50 means is that the economy is in contraction, or at least the manufacturing, Chicago manufacturing is in contraction. Now, we haven't had seven consecutive months of contraction in the Chicago PMI unless the economy was in a recession. So the only time we've had this, other than now, is during recessions. So if we have economic indicators that are so bad that historically we have only seen them when the economy was in a recession, how is it possible that the economy we have now is the greatest ever, right? So we have a lousy manufacturing sector, similar to what we normally have in a recession, but somehow the economy is booming because in theory, the consumer is so strong. Yet the retail stocks are imploding. How is it possible that the consumer is so strong when the retailers are that weak? We have all of these riddles. Unfortunately, the joke is gonna be on us because we're gonna end up electing Bernie Sanders. Right. Bernie Sanders continues to gain in the polls. In fact, I think that Biden really just uh, screwed up and, and, and threw Sanders a bone by accusing Bernie Sanders of not being a, a real Democrat. Right? And that, I think, is a big mistake because that is the same strategy that backfired on Republicans 
when they tried to use it against Donald Trump. Remember, a lot of Republicans were accusing Trump of not being a real uh, Republican, and they were right. I mean, he wasn't a real Republican. For most of his life, he was a Democrat. He just ran in the Republican Party because that was where he, uh, you know, he saw the opportunity. And, and so he became a Republican, and he was attacked for not being a real Republican, and the Republicans loved it. Because remember, the Republicans didn't like the Republican Party. It was dominated by a bunch of rhinos. And the minute Trump was attacked by the establishment as not being a real Republican, that only endeared him more to his base. And in fact, it expanded his base. All the people who wanted to shake up Washington, that wanted to throw a monkey wrench into the system, that wanted to drain the swamp, Trump was their guy. They didn't want a real Republican, an establishment Republican. They wanted an outsider. And by labeling Trump, as not being a real Republican, they were validating that. So they did Trump a favor. Well, now you have Joe Biden doing the same thing. Oh, Bernie Sanders, he's not really a Democrat. Look, he's a socialist. He's not a Democrat. He's in the Socialist Party. Well, that's exactly why so many Democrats are going to vote for him, because they are fed up with the Democratic Party, just like Republicans were fed up with the Republican Party. That's why they want an outsider. That's why they like Bernie Sanders. The more the mainstream Democrats beat up on Sanders for being an outsider and not being a true Democrat, the more support he's going to get in a Democratic Party that has been frustrated by all the false promises, but nothing has been delivered. Right? Barack Obama was all about hope and change. People had hope, but nothing changed. That is why Donald Trump won. That is why Donald Trump got a lot of Democrats to vote for him because he promised to change things as an outsider. Well, now Trump is an insider. Nothing has changed under Trump either. And the new outsider who's promising to shake things up is Bernie Sanders. Forget about the fact that he's promising to shake things up with socialism. The electorate is too dumb to know the difference. They don't know how bad socialism is. And there's no way that the Republicans are going to educate the voters at this point. See, a lot of people take for granted that, hey, all the Republicans have to do is point out that Sanders is a socialist and that socialism sucks and have some pictures of Venezuela. And in 30-second sound bites, they're going to convince the electorate to vote against socialism by voting for Donald Trump. I don't think that's going to work. I think uh, voters want socialism because you know what? They're broke. It's not because of capitalism, but they're blaming it on capitalism. Think about all these students that have debt. You don't think they're going to vote for the Democrat who's promising to get rid of all that debt, eliminate their debt? Of course they're going to vote for Bernie who else are they going to vote for? You think they want to pay off this debt? And then you got a lot of people who, you know, have medical bills that are high and he's promising to make those go away with government provided health care. There are a lot of people who have low paying jobs and he's promising a higher paying government job. Yeah, I think people don't know any better. They are going to vote for Sanders, especially if we are in a recession, which we clearly easily could be in by the time the election rolls around, and we could easily be in a bear market in stocks. In fact, those two can go hand in hand. And again, the problem is that Donald Trump has claimed credit for making America great again. He stated that we have this great economy and it's all because of him. And if it's not true, which it's not, 
and the illusion, uh, you know, the mirage disappears before the election, well then, who are the voters going to blame? And who are they going to look to for a solution? It's going to be Bernie Sanders. Now, also, you know, I talked a lot about um, socialism, communism on my last podcast, and I talked about one of the things that the communists, you know, don't get is the incentives that are created by profit and by capitalism, and that you can't expect people to work as hard for the benefit of strangers as they will for the benefit of themselves or for their family members. But according to Adam Smith's Invisible Hand, that's fine, because under capitalism, the only way that capitalist can enrich himself is by enriching others in the process. You have to supply goods or services that other people are willing to buy, right? And you have to do it better uh, than your competitors. So competition and free market capitalism is the way that you lift living standards for everybody. But my son pointed out to me, and I thought I would also talk about it, that I have to also uh, focus on uh, another aspect of, um, of profit that is key to a market economy. And you hear all of these uh, you know, democratic socialists vilifying profits. Profits are bad. We need to get rid of profits. And again, you know, I went around in the DNC in 2012 and I wanted to eliminate profits and all these democratic delegates were, you know, right, were with me. They all wanted to eliminate profits because everybody still has this Marxist view of profits as something that the entrepreneur takes, right? AOC, you don't make a billion dollars, you take a billion dollars. That profits are extracted off the backs of the workers, the surplus value of labor, all that, uh, you know, uh, Marxist nonsense. But the reality is that the pursuit of profits is what also results in an efficient allocation of resources. And there's no other way to do that but through private profit and market prices. See, what happens is when an entrepreneur wants to make money, businessman wants to make money, and so he sees some unmet need that's in the marketplace. And so he decides to try to satisfy the demand for that need by coming up with a product or a service, right? And to the extent that the entrepreneur is able to organize and combine the factors of production, land, labor, and capital, if he can do that in such a way that he can sell his goods or his products at a profit, right, well, then he's done good, right? Because we don't have an unlimited supply of resources. All of our resources are scarce. And so resources that are used to do one thing are no longer available to do something else. So we want to make sure that all of our scarce resources are allocated efficiently. We want to make sure that we are satisfying uh, the unlimited demands of, of consumers. So if an entrepreneur is successful and he combines these scarce resources in such a way that he is able to sell his products for a profit, then he has added value to society. That additional value, the value that he's added, right? The, the price above the cost, his profit is his reward for efficiently satisfying demands of other people. And so we want people to be rewarded when they do good, but also what the profit is telling the entrepreneur is keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a good job. You made a profit, do more of it. 
Keep producing these products. Keep providing these services because consumers value them. They are willing to give you money for these products, which means because this is a voluntary transaction that the products that they are getting, they value more than the money they are paying. So you are improving the lives of other people. Keep doing it, right? That is the profit motive. And if it wasn't for the pursuit of profits, none of these needs uh, would, would be met. And in fact, it's the pricing mechanism, right? If a lot of industries, when prices really start to go up, that sends a signal to producers, hey, here's a product that people want. Let me try to reorganize my resources to try to produce that product because the pricing mechanism is sending a signal to producers that this is what people want. And if you can produce it, you'll earn a profit. And so it's the pursuit of profit that causes resources to be reallocated to meet new demands. I mean, look, I've recently you know, started following this Cato diet. And, you know, so I, I've been doing it and, and so far the results are pretty good. I've dropped maybe 15, 20 pounds um, and I'm continuing to stay on the diet. I'm also, you know, combining it with the, the intermittent fasting. But one thing I've noticed now that I've been doing the keto diet is all these products that are out there that are specifically targeted for people who are uh, on keto diets, right? And where do all these products come from? Because this diet wasn't always this popular, but all of a sudden a lot of people are doing it. And so now there's all these products available for people who want to eat, you know, keto-friendly food. But where did it all come from? It came from producers who were reading the economic tea leaves, seeing what consumers wanted. There were prices, obviously, if there wasn't enough of these products, if they couldn't keep them on the shelves, prices were going up for these type of products. Well, then the producers start coming up with them. And now there's all sorts of products. Uh, that people can eat. I mean, I, I remember I was like, one of the things I missed, I didn't have any ice cream. And then I found uh, this Rebel ice cream, which had four grams of carbs per serving, which can have a, have a serving of that. It's not that bad. It's not the greatest ice cream I've ever had. I've been eating this mint chip. But, you know, it's nice when you're craving some ice cream and you haven't had any. Uh, but, you know, all this stuff, none of these products are ever created in a socialist system. No one is going to think of this. But, of course, no one has the incentive to do it. But in addition to profits, we also have to look at losses and why losses are so important. Because when entrepreneurs take those scarce resources, land, labor, and capital, and when they put them together and they don't make a profit, they lose money, right? A, they're getting punished for destroying value, but losses send a message to the entrepreneur, stop what you're doing cease and desist right because you are losing money now obviously there's a limit to how much money people are willing to lose and so if if they're going to stop because they're losing their own money and of course that is a risk that the entrepreneur takes because the entrepreneur doesn't know for sure whether his efforts to satisfy uh, demands are going to work he doesn't necessarily know whether he's going to be able to sell his goods or services at a profit until he brings them to the market. So that is a big risk. You have to risk your savings, risk your capital, which is why so many people don't want to do it. They don't want to take a chance. But we need to have a reward for taking a chance because no one's going to take a chance and take a risk of losing if they also can't gain if they can't be rewarded. So all these democratic socialists who want to do away with profits, you do away with profits, you do away with everything. You can't have a market economy without profits. 
You can't have efficient allocation of resources without profits. You don't know what you're doing when you just have a bunch of guys that you elect trying to decide what should be produced and what resources should be used to produce it. How do you have any idea if you're producing anything that anybody wants? And there's no competition. There's no incentives. I mean, it's a disaster every time it's been tried. But the problem is there's a group of intellectuals that this nonsense appeals to, right? It, it certainly appeals to your emotion. And unfortunately, the vast majority of Americans, though they wouldn't qualify as intellectuals, right? They don't have much of an intellect. They, they, just, they just vote with their emotions. And so many people are in financial trouble. I think I read this survey, something like 90% of Americans right now uh, have uh, m money problems, money concerns. You have you know, record numbers of people dying from suicide, addicted to drugs. I mean, all sorts of signs of economic distress out there. People are struggling and they're looking for solutions. And, you know, they thought they found a solution in Donald Trump because he promised to make America great again and drain the swamp. But all the problems that were here when Trump was elected are going to still be here when he's up for re-election, except the difference is now he's going to be claiming everything is great, just like people used to claim. And he said they were lying. He said, don't believe the government statistics. They're a bunch of lies. Believe me, I'm going to change things. Well, that's what Sanders is going to say. Don't believe these statistics. Who cares about the stock market? Donald Trump is lying to you. I am going to be there. I'm going to drain the swamp that he filled up with even more water. And I am going to change things because I'm going to give you free this and free that. And we're going to, uh, you know, uh, attack the billionaires, right? He's the billionaires are now the evil people, these profit uh, seeking greedy billionaires who took all these billions of dollars right there. They're going to be the villains in this. And I think, you know, what happened in the past with the bailouts and, you know, all that, you know, made people dislike capitalism even more, even though the bailouts had nothing to do with capitalism. In fact, all these money losing companies, I mentioned that profits uh, are a reward and losses are a signal to stop doing what you're doing. Well, why do we have so many companies, a record number of companies in the S&P that are losing money? Why did last year, did we set a record for IPOs for money losing company. Why isn't the market putting an end to all these money losing companies? After all, they are destroying value. If companies are consistently losing money, it's better if they go out of business. They need to free up those resources to be used uh, more efficiently someplace else. But what the Fed is doing with its cheap money, it is allowing companies that should die to continue to live. That's why you could call them zombie companies. They can keep tapping the capital markets, they can keep selling stock to keep, you know, subsidizing their losses. And you have all these companies losing money uh, that that are continuing to be in business. All of this is weakening the economy. These companies should have, you know, been allowed to go out of business. They are squandering capital, they're squandering resources. But of course, all of this is not going to be apparent until the air comes out of this bubble. And as it's deflating, uh, Bernie Sanders, if he's the nominee, and it's looking increasingly more likely that he will be the nominee. And again, as I said on my last port podcast, be careful what you wish for, Republicans. If you're wishing for Sanders because you think he's so beatable, he's actually not that beatable. And think about how bad it's going to be if he wins. I mean, Republicans should actually be rooting for Bloomberg because he's the least bad of the bunch, Right. But of course, they think that Bloomberg has the best chance of beating Trump. So they don't want Bloomberg, right? They want 
the Democrat who they think has the least chance to beat Trump. But if he does beat Trump, he's the biggest disaster for the country. But the amazing thing about this is, you know, as scary as the prospects of a Sanders presidency are, the markets really haven't begun to discount it unless they're doing that now. unless this is the beginning of the Sanders sell off, uh, which should bring the market into bear market territory, because if Sanders wins, this is going to be a ferocious bear market. And of course, as bearish as the Sanders presidency is for the stock market, it's even more bullish for the gold market. You know, gold is up four and a half percent on the month of January. So a strong start for the month of January. That means that every single stock market index is down priced in gold, even the NASDAQ, right? The NASDAQ was up two percent, but in priced in gold, it was down two and a half percent. So as I was saying, you know, last year, people were asking me, you know, what do I think will do better in 2020, gold or stocks? And I was saying gold so far, I'm right on that. Gold is beating the stock market in 2020. But if you look at gold stocks, that's not the case. In fact, I talked about this on my podcast. The last time gold was this strong in January, it was 2017. Gold was up 5.5% during the month of January. The GDXJ was up 20% that month, right? Investors were very excited about that 5.5% gain in the price of gold. They're not excited at all. The GDXJ in January was down 1.7%, despite a 4.5% rise in the price of gold. That means that investors are very bearish. They're very skeptical. I mean, this is the highest monthly close for the price of gold since April of 2013, right? So you're talking almost seven years ago since gold has closed this high. Yet gold stock investors are not enthusiastic about this. In fact, the GDXJ would have to go up another 25% from here to get back to where it was the last time gold closed this high. But of course, the difference between April of 2013 and now is in April of 2013, gold was going down. Gold was in its correction. Gold stocks were in a vicious bear market. Right? Now, gold is in a new bull market. Gold is up 50% plus in the last four years. Gold stocks are in a bull market, yet it's climbing a wall of worry. Investors are skeptical. But the reality is the fundamentals for gold have never been this good. Meanwhile, I just read that last year, production of gold actually declined. It was the first time in many, many years that production of gold went down. Uh, and so again, very, very bullish because you're not seeing a lot of investment in exploration and development because you have so much bearishness among the producers about the price of gold. And of course, you know, gold is also about scarcity, right? I mean, if they're not producing more gold, then gold is more scarce. Now, of course, I know a lot of people are gonna say, oh, Bitcoin, right, Bitcoin is scarce, maybe. I mean, of course, there are plenty of other cryptocurrencies that have the exact same utility as Bitcoin, which is no utility at all. But it's not just being scarce that makes you valuable. You have to be valuable and be scarce, right? You have to be uh, a commodity that is highly desirable, right? It, it has to be something that people want because it can do a lot of good. And then if you have this valuable commodity with all sorts of uses, and then it's also scarce. Well, that, that makes it, you know, the price go up. It makes it more valuable. But it doesn't do you any good to be scarce if you don't have any properties 
that, 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 that make, make you valuable, if you, if you don't have any utility, if you don't actually do anything, if you can't be used in anything or for anything, then what good is it if you're scarce? Because if there's no use for it, it doesn't matter how scarce it is. It doesn't have any value. So first you have to have real intrinsic value before scarcity uh, even comes into play. But the point is that people should be buying these gold stocks left and right, and they're not doing it. And as I've been saying, I think this is a gift horse don't look them in the mouth. Uh, just accept it. People should be loaded up on these stocks. Uh, you know, I, I obviously there's risk, right? There's always risk. I could be wrong. Gold stocks could go down. You could lose money if you buy them. But if I'm right, you're going to make a hell of a lot more money than you could possibly lose if I'm wrong. So you just have to make sure that you can afford to lose, right? Don't invest money that you can't afford to lose a good chunk of if I'm wrong. But if I'm right, the payoff is huge, right? The upside potential is far greater than the downside risk. And this is just a great, great investment opportunity. I still think that my gold fund managed by Adrian Day, the Euro Pacific Gold Fund, EPGFX, that's the best way to play it. You know, I still got five stars gold fund. I think we're going to be the number one fund uh, over the next several years. I really have a lot of confidence in Adrian. That's why I hired him. I think we got a great portfolio. You can get a prospectus. Make sure you understand the risks. But I would just be buying with both fists here. Uh, the public is asleep. Uh, even the professional investors are asleep. They have no idea. And you know, if more and more people just dismiss this market decline. If they say, oh, it's all about the coronavirus, so it's no big deal. As soon as they contain the virus, everything's going to be fine. The market's going to come back. You know, this is a, you know, a cloud that is over, overhanging the markets that are preventing people from seeing reality. Because what if the market is going down because we're beginning a bear market? What if it doesn't matter what happens with the coronavirus? The markets are still going down. You've created a false sense of hope among people out there. And I think the same thing is resulting in investors not buying gold stocks because they assume that the market's going to come back as soon as the corona scare is over, coronavirus scare. And so, hey, why buy gold stocks now? If gold's just up on this coronavirus, this is only temporary. It's not going to matter that, you know, we're, we're, we know gold is going to sell off. And by the way, gold was up about $15 today. We're just below fifteen ninety. Uh, on the price of gold. I think 1588, 1589. We're about $20 below the high for the year. Remember, we got up to 1610 the night that Iran retaliated and fired uh, some missiles at Air Force Base in, 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 uh, in Iraq. And that night, right, with those missiles, uh, the gold got up to 1610, but then it didn't stay there, it sold off. But tonight, this is the, you know, the, the, the highest close of the year. As I said, it's the highest close of, of, of close to seven years. But I think that with a lot of people just attributing that. In fact, I, I did a, an interview today. And again, I, this was on Russia Today, which I've been doing a lot of. And they asked me, you know, you know gold is going up because of the uh, coronavirus. You know, why is gold a safe haven with the coronavirus? And I had to say, look, it's not going up because of the coronavirus. It's going up. It was going up anyway. It didn't matter about the coronavirus. Gold has been rising. It's going up because of the virus of cheap money. It's the Fed. It's other central banks. That's why it's going up. It's not because of this virus. In fact, I mean, gold was only up 10, 15 bucks today. It's not like you're having a stampede into gold and you're not even getting people buying gold stocks. I mean, gold stocks were up today. 
but not enough to erase the losses on the year, even though you have this big increase in the price of gold. And you know, as, as big as the price of gold is up in dollars, it's up more in other currencies. The dollar index is up 1% on the month, which means that gold is up more than 4.5% in other currencies. In fact, some of the currencies have been hit even harder uh, so far this year, so gold prices are much stronger. But if gold is this strong, while the dollar is rising, and by the way, the dollar was down nicely today. Dollar index is down about a half a percent. But if gold can be this strong, with the headwind of a strengthening dollar, right? Just imagine how much stronger gold is going to be with the tailwind of a falling dollar. Oh, oh! I wanted to point out, I had been scheduled to be on Tucker Carlson's show tonight, and I've never been on Tucker's show. I, I, I've been a fan of his. I like his show. And I met him actually for the first time a couple of years ago at the New Orleans Investment Conference. He was one of the speakers and I met him there and nice guy. And so finally I was invited on the program to talk about the Fed, right? To, you know, which I was looking forward to do. I was supposed to do it tonight, Friday night, but then, you know, the impeachment stuff is, is taking too much time. So they just want to concentrate on the impeachment hearings. So I'm tentatively now scheduled I think to record the show on Wednesday. So I, I think it, I think they would air it on Thursday. I can't do it live that day because I'm, I'm flying to Orlando for the money show. And by the way, if anybody is going to be in Orlando, I'm speaking at the Orlando money show on Thursday, this uh, next week, uh, and then Friday morning. So I'm going to be there. I'm only going to be there for Thursday night and Friday morning till about the afternoon. I'm not going to stay at the show the whole time, but we're going to have a booth there. Europe Pacific uh, reps are going to be there. I'm headed with my family to Disney World to spend a few days there. The kids always like going to Disney World. It's a fun place. And uh, so I'm going to spend a few days at Disney World before I come back to Puerto Rico. But hopefully I will be on this Tucker Carlson show to talk about the Fed um, next week. And, you know, Tucker is normally pretty good. I mean, a lot of the stuff that he says I, I agree with. But I remember there's one thing in particular that, that Tucker said that I was thinking about that I disagreed with. And there's probably more than one, but one in particular that I'm just thinking about was he had a guest on there and they were talking about um, automation and truck drivers. And, and, and Tucker uh, bought into this idea, right? The um, Andrew Yang idea that automation is somehow bad, right? That, that this is something that we should resist, that we shouldn't have uh, self-driving trucks because that's going to put uh, the trucker out of business, right? Or that's gonna, that's gonna cause truck drivers to lose their jobs. And this is the same nonsense that they've been saying, you know, since the first uh, automation, since the first labor-saving device. I mean, that's the definition of a labor-saving device. You need less labor, but labor is a scarce resource. And if you could figure out a way to use less labor, well, that makes everybody better off. And so if we can bring down the cost of transportation by automating trucks so that trucks can be more efficient and they can operate, you know, 24-7, they don't get tired, they don't have to, they don't have to eat, uh, they don't, you know, they don't uh, get into as many accidents because it's all machines. If we could bring down the cost of transportation and we can free up truck drivers to do something better with their time, this, this is a huge win. And to say that we have to stifle innovation because, you know, some truck drivers are going to lose their jobs. That's the way the market works, right? Creative destruction. Although it's not necessarily bad 
for all truck drivers. I mean, first of all, if you, if you want to just, you know, have more truck drivers, why not just turn back the clock? Why not just get rid of the engines? Why don't we just have horses pulling around uh, the trucks, right? Because if we had horses instead of engines, wouldn't we need more truck drivers, right? Because the trucks would be a lot slower, right? You, they, they, you couldn't put as much stuff in the trucks because the horses couldn't, you know, pull as heavy a load. So we need more trucks, we need more drivers, right? Why don't we go back to horses, right? Obviously, anytime you make an improvement and you make things more efficient, you destroy the jobs of the labor that used to be required, but now have been freed up to do something else. But if you think about truck drivers, for, for, for example, a lot of truck drivers own their own trucks, right? And I can't think of anything better for a truck driver who owns his truck than to be able to automate the truck that he owns. Because that means he doesn't have to drive it anymore, right? He can now get all of the jobs, right? All the stuff that he needs to cart. He could just have the truck drive and he stays at home and relaxes and, and is with his family, with his wife and kids. I mean, what could be better for a truck driver than the truck driving itself? And in fact, if you're a truck driver and you own your own truck and you invest in the equipment that allows the truck to drive itself, and I don't know what it costs. Well, let's say you have a truck and in order to automate your truck to make it self-driving, maybe it's 20 grand. I don't know, I'm just making up a number, right? So obviously, either the truck driver can take 20,000 out of his savings, or he can go to the bank and get a loan, right? That's why savings are important. He can borrow somebody else's money and invest in the uh, computer equipment that would automate his truck to drive itself, right? He takes out a loan, he buys the equipment, and now his truck will drive by itself. But here's how he pays off the loan. Because now, because he doesn't have to drive the truck himself, the truck can operate more frequently, right? Because it can drive seven days a week, 24 hours a day. So that truck that he owns can now haul more cargo. It could make more trips. And that truck driver, because he is no longer behind the wheel, because he's simply managing his capital asset, his truck, and since he's invested in making that a capital asset more efficient because it's now self-driving, he can generate a lot more income off of that truck and that extra income will enable him to pay off the loan to automate that truck. And in fact, what he may be able to do is he start making so much money that he buys a second truck or a third truck and now he's operating a fleet of trucks. So he goes from one guy operating his own truck to having a trucking company with a bunch of self-driving trucks. Now, of course, will every truck driver do that? No, right? Some truck drivers will have to find other jobs, but that's life, right? That's how, the, you know, that's what happens, right? People have to deal with the problems that they have and overcome them. But, you know, if we lived in a more vibrant free market economy, if we didn't have all these barriers to entry to new occupations, if we didn't have all the occupational licensing laws, if we didn't have the labor unions, if we didn't have the minimum wage law and all these laws that make it easy to sue your employer, we'd have a much more vibrant job market. There'd have to be a lot of opportunities. It would be very easy for people who are displaced by uh, automation or uh, uh, some kind of innovation 
to find another line of work. It would be much easier. There'd be a lot less friction in the economy if it wasn't for the government uh, creating all that friction. And, but what's going to happen, of course, is a guy like Sanders is able to play up on people's frustrations about the economy and their and their worries about the economy. And they should be worried because the economy has been screwed up because we don't have a vibrant capitalist free market economy. The Republicans have been as guilty almost as the Democrats in screwing up the economy. And the problem is now the Republicans are the ones that are saying everything is great and, you, and, and it's because of us. And it's going to be the Democrats who are going to be able to be the agents of change. And it's amazing, you know, Bernie Sanders has been in Congress for almost 30 years, right? He started out, uh, you know, as a representative and then he became a senator. Before that, he was a mayor. So he's been in politics most of his life. He's clearly never uh, run a business. But for this guy to be considered an outsider, but again, as I said earlier in this podcast, uh, the fact that the Democratic establishment and Joe Biden are attacking him for not being a real Democrat, that's helping to solidify his outsider status, the guy that can change, the guy that, hey, he's not responsible for the mess that we're in. He's got the solution. But unfortunately, his solution is to make an even bigger mess because the reason that capitalism has failed is because we failed to have it. It's because of all the socialism that has already crept into capitalism. That is responsible for all the problems. But now instead of getting rid of the socialism so that capitalism can thrive and so that we can have a more vibrant economy that benefits everybody, instead of doing that, we're going to get rid of the capitalist part, and we're going to go all in on socialism. Mm-hmm.